Welcome to Fail Up Africa, the podcast where we talk about all things failure. That's right. This is a podcast and this is a space where we share stories and experiences dealing with and learning from failure. Each episode, we sit down with a new guest, an African trailblazer who unmasks what it really means to fail and what we can do about it. And that's everything from schooling to academics to careers to starting a business and even personal relationships. This is a space where we can get vulnerable, but with a dose of humor. Join us in getting real about failure. Happy New Year, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Welcome back to Fail Up Africa, the podcast. Hope you guys are feeling energized. Hope you guys enjoyed your holidays. Last time we had you here, we were doing a recap of our 2022 year, right? Myself and my co-host looking at the good, the bad, the highs, the lows, and of course, the lessons that we learned in and around conversations on failure, as well as our personal experiences, wins, and successes of the year. It was a phenomenal year of learning and growing. 2023 promises to be even more amazing. And of course, I'm not joined here alone. I am with my co-host all the way from, she's from Cameroon, but she's back in South Africa. And she's, she sounded a bit excited when we were checking in. Uh, she let you guys know how the past couple of weeks have been going. How are you doing, Alma? I'm great, Amina. It is so good to be back on Fail Up Africa, the podcast where things happen, where we learn and where we grow, as you said. Um, and I'm really looking forward to a year of conversations, embracing failure and speaking to different guests. Now, Amina, speaking about guests, I remember we put out a call on social media to all of our followers and listeners that if you want us to interview someone, let us know and we will contact them. And that's exactly what happened. You spoke and we listened. And today we have a phenomenal guest with us. Now, listen carefully. Our guest on this episode is the CEO of the Itoka Group. Now, the Itoka Group is a strategic capacity development firm, and she possesses diverse experience and expertise built over 21 years of leading the strategic development and implementation of programs, primarily in the fields of international development and social enterprise. But wait, there's more. Now, she's worked closely with public and private sector stakeholders, United Nations, IRC, non-governmental organizations, and academia in the U.S. and throughout the African continent. But most importantly, she loves working with communities and is passionate about training others to leverage their skills and draw from a breadth of experiences to add value across all domains. Amina, who is this phenomenal woman? If you guys have not already guessed who this person is, it is none other than Shara Itoka. In this episode, we sit down with Shara to learn more about her journey and, of course, the lessons she has learned on navigating failure, all the way to becoming the successful personality that she is on the African continent. And now Shara shares with us um, about some of her experiences with failure, the communities that have shaped her, the journey to leading up to this, and her perspectives on failure and resilience. Shara, a warm welcome to this episode. We are so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited uh, by your energy, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Awesome stuff. Amina, you're just as excited, yes? 
Definitely at the edge of my seat. It's been awesome. it's been one of the, the things I've been really looking forward to, especially to kick off and set the pace for, for an amazing year here on the podcast. That's right. We're kickstarting the year off with a bang. Now, Shara, before we get into these questions, we just want to share with you and remind our listeners of our pillars right here at Fail Up Africa, the podcast. Now, these pillars are vulnerability, reflection and learning, and as always, a little dose of humor. So we ask you to get vulnerable with us, to reflect and share on your learnings, and to find little moments to laugh with us, because Omina and I really do think we are funny. So the first question and point of discussion would be your origin story. Now, a lot of people know the sharer that you are today, the things that you've accomplished in your work in the public and private sector, with stakeholders, a successful CEO you are, but what they don't know is your backstory. So please briefly share with us your origin story from your childhood to a time before you became a success um, and all the things that have led you to being right here in this moment where you are. Thank you. I was born in Monrovia, Liberia, in West Africa in the early 80s. I'm giving away my age here. I was born in 81, <laughs> but it was just after we had a coup d'etat. And it was a time of major transition. And, and I always think back and imagine, and I've talked to my mom about this too, being pregnant during that time, it was, uh, it was scary. But um, I spent my early years, you know, as we transitioned to a new leader, um, I was in Liberia until my father attended school in the U.S. So that's why I'm giving you my, my best, best American accent right now. But um, it will probably shift throughout the podcast. But we moved to the U.S. when I was five years old. And it was supposed to be for a short time. And then the Civil War broke out back home in Liberia in 1989. And we were stuck there. My mom and two sisters, uh, myself, we were stuck there in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And my father was stuck in Monrovia. So I grew up in this complicated state. You know, I, I was a very rambunctious, talkative child, but I was trying to navigate life in an unfamiliar place. You know, um, my father's absence was a point of, of distress for me, yet I was also in a happy setting. I had a wonderful community. I had good teachers, a few good teachers, and a couple great mentors, and a stable home life. And but there was this underlying instability that I was always, you know, worried about my family back home. I was worried about my friends back home. Um, but I managed to get through primary school, high school, secondary school in the U.S. And then some other transitions happened. <laughs> I went to school in New York initially, and then I went to school <laughs> in 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 Paris. I finished my undergrad there and went back to the US, usually in between, and did graduate studies in the UK, and eventually went back home to Liberia when I was 26. And that was a, a big point for me because I could see life back home and, and be in a post-conflict setting and contribute to the recovery of the country, do my small part. And that's where I was really immersed in the public sector. Uh, and then got some experience in the private sector. I'm trying to make this long story short, which brought me up to the point of, of success, I would say. There are different points of achievements, different points of success. But I would say in my early 30s, 
I was experienced that an accomplishment and an achievement that I, I desired for such a long time. And it really laid the foundation for years later, starting my consulting business and uh, moving to Rwanda. That's fantastic, Shara. Uh, I'm drawing a lot of parallels with your early childhood experience in the United States, similar to my own. I I moved to, to New Jersey because of uh, dad's work. Dad was working for the United Nations at the time. This was back in 2008. And I was I was nine years old, right? And confused and struggling to navigate this this new culture. And as you mentioned, these these transitions at the as as you were moving, Kenya was was just recovering from from the post-election violence. So there were a lot of conversations in media about what's going on at home and the likes. And it was it was very difficult for me to to explain to the peers I was meeting, the the communities that I was a part of outside of my household, about where I come from, and at that young age, did I did I even understand what was going on at home? And I'm very curious to understand, Shara, as you were navigating these early transitions over the course of your time in the United States, you know, coming back to the continent, for us to understand who you are now, right? What do we need to know about? this part of your life with navigating this process around conversations of your identity and being able to, to, to fall in love with who you are as an African when home doesn't, you know, look as, as stable or, or as comfortable as, as it would be? I love this question, <laughs> you know, because there was a lot of duplicity and maybe you can relate to that. You know, there's times where you're enjoying or, having fun meeting friends or going to summer camp, but yet you're not, I wasn't fully there because I'd go home and the news would be on. I, I grew up in that household that was CNN all the time. And yeah, these yeah. Images, <laughs> these images, you know, some people, it's a BBC household. Our household was a CNN household. There are these images of what's going on in Liberia and I could not shake it. You know, and I realized more and more the the privilege I had. Of course, I was living the immigrant experience in the U.S. I'm not going to, like, romanticize it. It wasn't easy. Uh, people couldn't understand me. I was speaking Liberian English only. I was, you know, you know just dealing with—I lived in a diverse city, right, because Cambridge has a lot of universities. I was between Harvard, MIT. There's so many internationals. But yet, when I went home— I, I wouldn't say I was like exactly back in Liberia, but my mom really created an atmosphere of that, that we're, we're Africans, that you're Liberian, that um, you cannot fully disconnect with home. We're eating our food. We're listening to our music. We were part of the Liberian Association. We we're engaged with other Liberians. But it was just that never forget where you're from and one day go back. She really planted that seed in me to go back and I did 21 years later, but the seed was really planted when I was a kid. So I, I felt that conflict. You know, I, I'll never forget just seeing images of child soldiers uh, and just and feeling guilty even, you know, feeling guilty because I felt that I, and I realized as a child that my friends or my cousins you know, my relatives were not experiencing what I was experiencing. And in a way, it kind of pushed me to perform more in school. And it also gave me this kind of um, 
escapee's guilt, if I would call it that way, because uh, I wasn't a survivor. I wasn't there during the war, but I escaped a situation. I knew very well that I would have been in that same place. So I carried that with me. That's so beautiful. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that. I think I was having a recent conversation with a couple of my friends who, over the course of their childhood, they moved around a lot, right? This this concept known as third culture kids, right? Your mm-hmm. passport country is is this one, but then because of the different places that you move through, you you sort of feel dissociated from your home culture, right? And one of the things, the conversations that we we've had on the podcast here is is the role that the different communities that we're a part of has played in shaping conversations around failure, right? We had a couple of our guests share how their parents' love and attention put in academics really filtered into them as well and and the energy that they put into the academics and this interaction with failure being founded in, oh, are you getting good grades? If not, then you're a failure, right? I'd love I'd love to understand over the course of this process, when did you first interact with this manifestation of what failure is and was it in any way informed by the communities that you were part of either in the household or outside of it Mm. well you're really getting me to reflect today you know at home my mom is an interesting person because she she didn't put so much she wasn't super traditional in that way that she didn't put so much pressure on us to perform academically but it was just we were performing academically i have two older sisters that came before me and really set the pathway for me you know i would show up in a classroom and they'd be like oh i know felicite oh i know phyllis like and they're so strong at school i expect you to be the same and i was but let me tell you a subject that I struggled in. <laughs> Overall, I performed well. You know, I was, I'm extroverted. I very, very, I like to talk. I like to perform, you know, that's my personality. But math was not my friend. <laughs> math was not my friend. And I I really struggled. I was, I would, I'd be that student that would come early in the morning before classes started, before the day started. There was like a, a tutoring session at 7.30 or something or 7.15. And I was there. And then my the, my sister, Phyllis, she's excellent in math and science. And so she would tutor me as well at home. So I was getting all of this extra help, but I struggled. And I really had a fixed mindset in that area. I felt like, well, math, some people are good at math. Some people are not strong at math. And this is just my portion in life. And and yet I still took honors classes, especially when I went up to secondary school. I was taking honors, honors, honors until I reached AP calculus. I was like, I am not doing this because I'm not going to struggle for a B minus or a C. I'm going to take advanced math, which is the course for those of us who did not want to take AP calc. So math was really my first entry point in, in understanding that I'm not, I have strengths and I have weaknesses. And it's interesting, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but my son, who's almost 10 years old, is a superstar at math. He's so strong. And um, I just, I really encourage him in that. (laughs) But I also talk to him about failure as well, because he's experiencing it in other in other areas. But yeah, math was really that entry point for me. And I what I did to kind of 
I, I embedded myself in a community of people who either could support me as in like b- being a tutor or I, and I also pushed myself to continue to take honors and to take high level math courses. I just had to supplement it. I 100% can relate to everything that you're saying, Shara. I think there's something about being a young person who has been forced to move because of war, insecurity or injustices that just creates this fire within you to want to succeed, to strive for excellence, to be the best that you possibly can be, because you almost feel as though you owe it to your home country to go back and to develop it and to give back. However, like you rightfully said, and I I wrote these notes down before you even said it, it comes with a guilt. And it's something that I can relate to as well, because I had to leave Cameroon because of the civil war that's going on. And that guilt of knowing that you're away, but not everyone else is. That privilege of knowing the access to opportunities that you have can create a sense of depression, a sense of loneliness, not being self-aware, not knowing who you are, where you fit in. And, and that, that leads to pressure and pressures lead to, you know, some sorts of failure. And so my question to you, it's a two-part question. When it comes to failure and dealing with failure, what do you think? Firstly, what do you think Africans need to do differently? Then that's Africans within Africa as well as Africans in the diaspora. And let's start with that one first. I think that we have to embrace it. I'll start with on the continent. Uh, we're all sitting on the continent right now. I, I think it's important for us to embrace failure, which sounds strange, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or counterintuitive. But part of embracing failure is saying that we fail We fail at, these, at lots of things all the time and not denying it or being defensive about it, you know, uh, I heard someone say recently that progress starts with telling the truth and we need to be honest with ourselves. You know, there's there's a lot of negative media, negative stories around Africa. And so I understand why it's tricky because we're often looked down upon and there's already like, like failure is always highlighted. But still, I believe that we must be honest with ourselves and say that, okay, we're making progress in particular industries, in particular countries, context, and all of that. But we still have a long way to go in, you know, for example, women's rights, in children's rights. You know, there's so much more that we need to do, and we haven't fully arrived. I like this language. I I like the language of I'm proud of being African. I'm proud of being from a particular place or a particular ethnic group or a particular community and family. I think I think you can have both. It doesn't have to be just one thing. You can say, well, I am proud to be Liberian. And yes, I have some constructive criticism here. And I realize that we are failing in a certain area. And um, we can learn through through these failures. And um, we can, can turn it around. We can turn it around and we can make progress. Yeah. But it starts with us first telling the truth. Mm, I think that's so powerful. Telling the truth, understanding the truth, and accepting the truth. Um, that's that's absolutely brilliant. And I think that the follow-up question from that would be, being this, you know, this individual who is a high achiever and overachiever, if I may, you find yourself 
being referred to as a solopreneur, right? That's when people think of Shara, they think of a solopreneur um, because you started a new company in 2016 in the United States and in 2018 in Rwanda before the pandemic hit. And so as a solopreneur, as a, an African living in the diaspora, what was it like? Were there fears that you had to grapple with? And if they were, how did you overcome these fears? There were fears. <laughs> I think, you know, when you're, I'm not a perfectionist, but I'm definitely a person that wanted to, I was very ambitious, you know, I wanted to accomplish certain things by a certain age. You know, that was my mindset when I was younger. Now in my 40s, totally different, you know, uh, totally different. I definitely am I'm living. I understand that this journey is not linear. You know, I'm living a life that is authentic and a life that understands that I'm going to fall down and I'm going to get right back up, you know. But as a solopreneur, I every day I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning new things, especially because I am building a business in a country that's not my own. So I'm back to being an immigrant. You know, the experience that I had in the U.S., there were a lot of traumatizing points and, and experiences with racism, experiences and realizations that no matter how well I perform in school, I could walk down a certain street and I could uh, uh, I could be shot or a cop could treat me a certain way. I, I faced discrimination even in, in the classroom, we have to work twice as hard. I think you could all relate to this, right? Where you feel that you have to work twice as hard um, in order to accomplish what you want to accomplish. But I think the fear of failure really sets you back. It sets you back and it causes you to even self-sabotage. So once I got to a point where I, I read a book, actually, this was a major turning point. I believe I was 17 years old. And I was part of this, I would say, like a mentor, like a mentorship group. And it was actually through my church. The pastor pulled like some young people who were very passionate or excited about change. And we were being mentored. And so we read a lot of um, books about like Stephen Covey books. And and um, we read one of this book called Failing Forward. It was John Maxwell. Yes, because it was escaping me, the name of the author. So it's called Failing Forward. And I read this when I was 17 years old. And at that point, I, you know, I was applying to schools, universities, and, if, you know, the experience you get into some, you don't get into others. I remember I applied early admission to Harvard and um, I was waitlisted and then I didn't get in. And so I was feeling bad. Of course, I, I got into some great schools, but I felt really bad because my hope was really resting on this um, opportunity. So I read yeah. this book and I realized that when you fail, it's what happens after. It's what yeah. you do with that, with what you do with that failure. And it's really important that we're learning from every single experience. And then we're giving ourselves grace, that we're not beating ourselves up and like, I'm destroyed. No, not, no failure can destroy me. Actually, a failure can make me because mm. I, I've actually... Failures have set me on a different trajectory, mm -hmm. you know, and looking back, like I could think of even a big one when I was 18 or, or you know, there were some failures that set me on a different tra trajectory, which brought me to this point right now where I'm sitting. And I would not be sitting here if I didn't fail. 
Yeah, that is, that's so powerful. Absolutely everything that you've said and giving us these practical examples that we ourselves can relate to as young people, such as applying for universities and not getting in, um, you know, trying out opportunities that we believe we really deserve and not making it, but then still making it to our purpose. Um, and which is what you said, where you are right now would not have happened if you had not gone through those failures. And so apart from Harvard, now speaking about your business as a young entrepreneur, because we have a lot of young listeners who are also entrepreneurs, is there anything specifically that did not go as planned? Um, and if so, how did you deal with that? Okay, my first project in Rwanda um, was a project that I was really passionate about. I spent a lot of time in the private sector working on manufacturing and textiles. I love fashion. I love sustainable fashion. I'm really fascinated by uh, a supply chain that has integrity, a supply chain that's entirely uh, based on the continent of Africa, which I know can be complicated. But this project, I was designing an impact assessment for a NGO that had been working with and training women uh, to sew. And I was excited. I actually, it was a cold um, email I sent out. I reached out to the organization myself saying, well, you've had this program for 10 years. Have you ever evaluated it? And they're like, no, we just know that our graduates are doing really well. I'm like, but how do you know? (laughs) You know, so I pitched it, right? So I'm so excited. I pitched to this organization from the U.S. I was not in Rwanda at the time. I had been to Rwanda before. I'd been in and out. But I was not in Rwanda. And they're like, yes. And, you know, I relocate, relocate my family. We're here. And, you know, as someone who is a practitioner at heart, I am a practitioner. I love to be in the field. I like to I like to do the work. I like to I love being in the flow and doing that deep work on the ground with communities, with the women. And I did not think so much about the nuances that I would have to navigate to get the information that I need. Mm-hmm. I was faced with a lot of gatekeeping. Um, Once I started the project, I was piloting it, I had designed it, but in the process of designing it, I wanted it to be really co-created, which means that you need to work side by side with people who are working with the women as you're designing some of the questions. And I'm not fluent in Kinyaranda. My Kinyaranda is actually quite poor, (laughs) something I'm working on. So at the time I had an interpreter, but there was still gatekeeping along the way. And as a West African, we communicate in a different style. (laughs) I'm I'm trying to be like uh, diplomatic here, but we are very direct in in our approach to things. And in other parts of the world, people are more indirect, I would say, even passive aggressive. So I had a lot of nuanced, like I had to try, if I tried to get information one way, it didn't work. I had to try another way. You know, I had to be flexible. I had to um, be nimble. I, I had to pull in other resources. I would, you know, try to find creative ways of getting the information. And ultimately I did. And at one point I had to have a conversation, a, a difficult conversation, but important conversation about this uh, gatekeeping that was happening and why it was happening and how we could work together. So, you know, 
I've worked on the continent. I've been in the bush, you know. I come from from government at the Ministry of Planning in Liberia. I used to spend a lot of time in the counties, and I love being in the interior. I pride myself in being down to earth and being able to mix high, low, you know, just kind of making people feel at ease. But when I was working on this project, I was dealing with someone who did not feel at ease and did not appreciate my style of communication. So I had to I had to pivot. And um, I'm grateful for that experience because it really informed my the past five years <laughs> that I've been working in Rwanda. Wow, Shara. Your experiences are making me reflect on my work as an entrepreneur. And it's always interesting speaking to entrepreneurs because we're sort of seen in some respects as the black the black sheep, right? People who've chosen to take a non-conventional approach to our careers, right? With with whatever we're starting, whatever we're we're disrupting, <laughs> you know, in whatever industry. And one of the interesting things that I'm reading, I'm reading from your experience in Shara is are your values, right? And and your deeply rooted opinions about about who you are and and how you believe you you'd like to to conduct your your work and and approach your goals and values are there instances where your deeply rooted values and opinions have been challenged in the spaces that you work in and how have you managed this relationship with yourself in such high pressure situations where you feel like there's a push and pull you know as i ask this you know keeping in mind that you know we do have young people either in entrepreneurship as young entrepreneurs or considering entrepreneurship as a possible career line, what would you say to them with regards to managing this push and pull that that comes with the expectations in the industry? Wow, I wish I haven't <laughs> I hadn't experienced this uh, yeah. several cases, but but it's great because I've been able to advise others and young people about this too. So I'll just say that first off the bat. I integrity is everything to me. And integrity is it's just it's there are layers to it. There are layers to it. And um especially if you come from um a environment where corruption is rampant. And um and I'm talking, I'm thinking of not just Liberia, I'm talking about the US. <laughs> there's a lot of there's white collar corruption and then there's the corruption, you know, there's a corporate level and then there's corruption at all levels, right? At the lowest levels. But integrity means everything to me, everything to me. And in a way, I used to think it was um it was to a fault you know, that I was too much of a social justice warrior or I was too much of a, no, we have to like, you know, go back to the principles and what we said in the beginning. But I do think that it's a characteristic that is good. And it, and it, and I carry it, I do, I carry it with me and I'm, I'm, I'm that person. I'm wired that way. So when I see that the principles, like I'm a principal person, if my principles do not align with the work that I do, or I took a, a a project, or I'm working with a client that that is, um, you know, going against my principles in their actions. I have found that one, I will always speak up, and two, I will not I will not stay there for long because I I have to make sure that things change, um, and 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 it's and it's not a bad thing. So I'm going to give you an example. 
that that was like pivotal for me. And, and other people felt like, you know, a few people advised me like, no, Shara, this is this is awful. Why would you, you know, why would you make these choices? But so I love working with communities and communities of women, especially I've, I've enjoyed working in the gender equity space. And, and I was working with a community of women and it was a program that there were, you know, women were supposed to have a percentage of uh, the ownership and they were supposed to have a voice and they were supposed to have health insurance and they were supposed to have like all of these different benefits that were really clearly laid out and that investors agreed upon. Like they agreed to this and that's what made this project so exciting. It's because women in the community were not seen as beneficiaries. They were seen as partners. And I love that. And that's why that's why I would want to align myself with this type of work. And um, as the project was going along, I was seeing that in reality, it was not so. It was not that way that the women were being uh, put aside, that um, there were always delays in getting them the services that they need. Uh, and I felt I hate hypocrisy. And I'm not saying this in a way that life is perfect and I'm a perfect person and I've never found myself in a hypocritical situation. I'm just saying at my core, I hate hypocrisy and it makes me feel gross. I feel bad and I don't, I don't want to be a part of implementing something that is um, being hypocritical. Um, so I spoke up, you know, I always give, I give opportunities to speak up and I try to change and I try to change and I do my best to support the, the women and, and people in the project. And when I saw that there wouldn't, there would not be any change, what I did was I gave, you know, gave some time, gave some, my notice that I was going to transition out of this project, but I ensured that the insurance was there. You know, everything that was promised was delivered before I left. So I'm I'm just that type of person. Sometimes I will find that there I've found myself in projects or working with clients that just did not align with my values. And it is not something that is sustainable for me. I cannot stay with a project like that long term. So I would say, as my advice, is that your principles are there your values are there for a reason and don't put don't put it down don't don't deny it don't push it down because that is that i feel like it's our core and it's connected to our our souls and i i you want to feel like you're whole and that's the whole integrity part right that there's no you're not double faced in that in that sense so go with your gut go with your intuition and always never lose sight of your values and always practice them. I love, love, love it, Shara. Thank you so much for being open and forthcoming with that. Um, at this at this point in the episode, we'd like to move to the final questions, which will come in the style of a rapid fire. Elma, tell Shara and our listeners more about this. It's my favorite time of the show. It's rapid fire questions time. And this is a segment where you can expect in every episode. Now we take up to three minutes and that's a short amount of time um, to ask our guests some interesting questions based on a specific theme. Now, Shara, this is for you. Guests must answer the question asked of them and they must keep their answers short with no explanations whatsoever. Today's rapid fire segment, rapid fire question segment rather, is called Throwback to my 18-year-old self. Shara, are you ready? I'm ready. Awesome stuff. 
First question. Now, I want you to think back to the time when you were 18 years old. What is the one mistake or serious error of judgment you made during this time? I turned down a full scholarship to a university in order to pursue theater in New York. Oh. Whoa. As an Whoa. African child. <laughs> I told you my mom was different. My mother no, was No, but that's weird. so cool. That's so cool. No, I still think about this scholarship. So anyway. Okay. Very interesting. I mean, you're yeah. cool. <laughs> We're going to talk about this at the end of the, after after the wrap of this episode. That was a that was a yeah. beautiful fact right there. Got the bomb, huh? Yes. Definitely. <laughs> uh, next question, Shara. Finish this sentence. When I was 18 years old, failure was? Failure was taking a year off of university between my freshman year, my first year, and my sophomore year, um, my second year. I, can I say more? <laughs> yes, I want please. You to, I'm sorry. We, Same. <laughs> we have to. We're going to break the rules. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about it later. But yes, I took a year off between those two years. Wow. Okay. I felt like a failure. Uh-huh. We're going to have a whole internal conversation after this episode is done. That's, a whole, because, that's episode ooh, two of this hey, series two, right two, here. Two. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, so next up, Netflix is making a movie about your life. Who would play your 18-year-old self in this film? Mm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a huge Issa Rae fan. Ooh. And mm-hmm. I am the awkward black girl. And yes, Issa Rae. And she's half Senegalese. We love the awkward black girl. Yeah. <laughs> See, Shara, I knew there was something about us that was just Resident. attracting us. You know, you got what I'm talking about. Like, there's just something. You're my spirit animal right now. Hey, I love Next it. Question. <laughs> Next question. Given the context of this podcast, what is one piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? Lean into the changes. Lean in. Shara, I just feel like everything that comes out of your mouth is quotable. It's like a tweet, and I can see it on a shirt. <laughs> so hey, let's, let's get that. Let's, let's partner up. Let's yeah. talk about this after the show. Yeah. <laughs> and your final rapid-fire question for the day is, when you were 18 years old, thinking about your future, what did you hope you would be remembered by? A passionate leader fully aligned with her values. Mm. So well put, so well packaged, so well spoken. That brings our rapid fire questions to an end. It was absolutely fun doing that with you, Shara. And as this episode comes to a close, what a phenomenal, phenomenal conversation. Lots of golden nuggets, lots of quotes, lots of shirts (laughs) that I can see being made as well. Um, I'm just going to hand over to you, Omina, to wrap this up because... Wow, I'm speechless, which doesn't happen. Shara, you've accomplished something that we have not been able to accomplish on this <laughs> podcast. And it's leaving Elma a cop speechless. <laughs> no, but definitely this was one of the best ways I've started the year, you know, over the past couple of years. And it's, it's the fact that we can, for half an hour, 45 minutes, just welcome each other into our experiences, you know, about failure, about our childhoods, about you know, the things closest to us that have really informed and made us who we are today. And, you know, to the listeners, you know, we hope you resonated with, with Shara's story. We hope you you can personalize it as well, right? Pick the learnings that you can pick from her, 
from her story and most definitely take up their advice because it is very relevant to to us as young people, whether you're in high school, you're finishing high school, you're in college, you know, you're going through the ups and downs of, you know, your early 20s or even if you're, you know, further along in your career, right, and and going through some of these transitions that we that we do go through in life. I think I think Shara has really spoken to a lot of our human experiences and that's all that you know we could we could ask of her. If you liked what you heard, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, your colleagues. You know, do like, share and subscribe to this podcast. You know, the more you do that, the more you know more people can discover Fail Up Africa the podcast. And for those who would love to interact with us further, we have something for you as well. Right. We would would like to hear from you, you know, on how you are failing up from last year. Right. And if you'd like to engage with us, do send us a voice note speaking to us about, you know, how you failed up from last year via our Instagram page that is at Fail Up Africa. And if you want to learn more about the work that we do, check out our website at failupafrica.com. Follow us. And as always, it has been real. I was your co-host, Boniface Omina, joined here with Elma Akob. Alma, they want to hear your proper titles. Thank you so much, Amina. Um, and it's been a great being your co-host, Alma Akob, a.k.a. A Voice to be Reckoned With. See you next time. And Shara, thank you so much for joining us. You can sign off for Shara as well. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So much pressure. This is... <laughs> I'm like, I need a cool thing to say. This is Shara signing off. And I'm out. Hey. Shara, Shara... I- I have one for you. If if people would love to to engage with you more and and oh, yeah. and and check out the work that you're working on, where can they find information on that? A proper proper sign off. Yes, if you'd like to find out more or engage with me, if you'd like to work with me, collaborate, or if you just want to chat, you can reach me at theitokagroup.com, and I am on Instagram and Twitter at theitokagroup or at C-M-I-T-O-K-A if you just want to watch my stories and you like memes. You heard it here, folks. If you like to watch her stories, memes, everything to do with, you know, uh, strategic capacity building, you know, Shara Shara is your go-to. Thanks so much for joining us, Shara. My pleasure. Thank you.